Mark, Mark 9. We're going to begin at verse 30. Mark 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark 9. And we're going to begin at verse 30. We're going to be reading all the way to verse 50. Hope you're there. Mark 9, verse 30. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he, sat, he said to them, If anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not, him, not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak, was soon able, soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that you have given both of them because you love us. And we thank you that both your word and your spirit testify to the gospel of, your Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. And we pray that your word and your spirit would open our ears Remove the blinders from our eyes. Soften our hearts so that we would hear your word and respond. We pray that we would respond to your warnings and to your comforts, to your promises, to your commands, and that we would trust in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would do this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus and the disciples are walking. They're walking down the road. And as they are walking, they're going through Galilee. 
And Jesus doesn't want anybody to know that he is walking through Galilee with them because he is concerned that they will immediately try to make him king. And Jesus did not want to be king until he had suffered for the church. No cross would he, no, no crown would he take until he had taken the cross. The people of Israel didn't want him to take the cross. They didn't want a suffering savior. They wanted him immediately to be king. And in some places they actually try to forcibly put a crown on his head. But he refuses. He says, I will suffer for the church before I take the crown. I will take the crown. And so he doesn't want this to be announced that he is going through Galilee and he's with his disciples and he's teaching them about how he will first suffer for the sins of the church. And they didn't understand. And as they're walking, the disciples are arguing, arguing with each other about who is the greatest. And they're arguing quietly because they knew that Jesus wouldn't like this. They knew that Jesus would think that this is kind of disgusting. And after they finish walking, they get to the house. Then Jesus, knowing what they were saying, asked them, what were you talking about? And they didn't tell him because they were embarrassed to tell him. And then Jesus sets a child in front of them and says, whoever would be the greatest would have to become the least, must be servant of all. And with this child, he says, whoever receives a child in my name, you're not showing that you simply receive that child. You're saying something about what you think about me. And if you receive me, this has to do with your relationship with God. And then he says, greatness Greatness in the eyes of the Lord in the kingdom of God is treating a child of God with respect, honoring them, receiving them, serving them. And then he goes on in our passage today, which is 42 to 50, to talk about what is shameful. He has talked about what is greatest in the kingdom. Now he will talk about what is least in the kingdom. Last week, kids, you remember... You remember what we learned last week? I'm just going to remind you so you can remind your, your parents if they forgot. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is the greatest. And he's the greatest because he died for us. He died for people who were his enemies to make them his children. That's why Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. We also learned last week that it is great to be a child of God. That's great to be one of God's kids. And it is also a great thing to welcome somebody and treat them as a child of God because they trust in Jesus. It's great. It's great to do that. And what you find to be great is also going to tell you what you find to be shameful. This is just automatically true. If I want to know what you think is shameful, all I need to know is what you find is great. And so here we see the flip side of the coin, the terrifying flip side of the coin of what is great in the kingdom of heaven we're going to find out what is shameful in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to learn this. And you kids, you will remember these things. You can understand this. Even if you don't know everything that you hear, as you grow older, the more time you spend in church, you'll learn more and more things. But even now, you can remember the most important things. And so you can remember that causing a child of God to sin is shameful. Causing someone to sin is very shameful. God does not like that at all. You can also remember that hell is for everyone who's not a child of God. And you can also remember that treating something as greater 
than God, treating something as greater or more important than being God's child, that is shameful. And you can also remember that God will plan your life so that you can understand this better, to show these things to you because he loves you. Dear church, there will be people who want us to sin. There will be people who will encourage us to sin. There will be people who tell us that sin is not sin. There will be people who tell us that holiness, that goodness is sinful. In fact, there will also be people who threaten us to sin. Why then should we continue to have childlike obedience to Christ? Why would we continue to just trust what Christ says and obey what Christ says? Why would we do that if some people will hate us because of it and they will try to make us sin and try to force us to sin? Why is that? Dear church, we need to hear the answer to that question. God loves the church so much that he wants us to hear the answer to that question so that we will persevere. And not just persevere, grinning and bearing it, and just thinking because it's the right thing to do, but that we would persevere with joy, with anticipation, with hope and gladness, with longing and encouragement, knowing that we will be satisfied. And so our first point is this. Causing a child of God to sin is shameful. Notice he does use the word child. Or he, 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 uh, intend, he intends that. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Why would he use the word child? I think, first of all, he's, he's saying any Christian. The point is any Christian, even the least Christian. Because we can see the world would tell us that, that doing something against somebody who's unimportant, that doesn't really matter. But harming somebody important, oh, we're going to throw the book at you. But this here is telling us, if God thinks that being a child of God is great, if he loves his children so dearly, if Christ loved his children so dearly, even while they were enemies, that he would give up his life for them, and if being a child of God is great, then simply being a child, the most insignificant Christian who's never accomplished anything, the least wise Christian, the youngest Christian, the Christian who nobody knows about or has any respect, even that person, even that, even sinning against that Christian, would be, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean. The point is that every Christian is a child of God, a little one who bears Christ's name. God took their name on the cross and was damned for it. And Christ says, give them my name. Give them my accomplishments. Have them treated by the dignity that I deserve because I was treated with the shame that they deserve. Now church, we cannot be forced to sin. We should not misunderstand this passage. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, to, uh, little ones who believes in me to sin. It is not teaching us that we can be forced to sin. Let me read James, uh, let's read 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. I'll just just show you that this is not what he intends to say. He's saying something slightly different. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a good comfort from God's word. No one can make you sin. You do not have to fear the future. What if someone forces me to sin? What if somebody makes me sin? What if somebody applies so much pressure that I will sin? And the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10 says, you do not have to worry about that. I will hold you. The Holy Spirit will strengthen you. Use the gifts that God has given you of your church to strengthen you. And I will always give you a way out. There will always be something you can do to not sin. You will always have a choice to not sin. But that might be losing your hand. It might be losing your foot. It might be losing your eye. It might be losing your life. But God will always give you the ability, if you're a Christian, to not sin. We cannot make someone sin. Nobody can make us sin, but we can certainly be an influence for sin. This is what he's talking about. Encouraging Making it hard to obey God's commands. How is it that we can cause someone to sin in this way? First, by sinning against them. Note that. We can influence somebody to sin by sinning against them. There's a parallel passage in Luke 17. And Luke records some of the things that Mark didn't. And we're not going to use Luke's words to change what Mark says. But to make sure we understand what Jesus is not talking about. In Luke, I'll just read Luke 17, 1 to 4, parallel passage. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here we see the focus is on someone sinning against you. So we see how can we encourage or cause someone to sin by sinning against them. This is a theme throughout scripture. In Ephesians 6, we have a command that children should obey their parents. But we also have a corresponding command that that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger. They're not to exasperate their children. Parent, or parents, fathers, and mothers are to be careful that even though the children are supposed to obey them, they are to be careful that they do not make obedience hard by being unchristlike and ungodly in their commands, by commanding unreasonable things, by commanding things that are very difficult and unreasonably difficult, by being hypocrites. Parents can sin against their children and not force them to sin, but cause them to sin. Christians are commanded to forgive. And it will be a challenge to forgive. But we are not to be free of the ones who are following Christ, the commands of that. And among the hardest parts of holiness, and I'm sure that you could attest to this, among the hardest parts of holiness is responding to the sin of other people. I think you'd agree with me on that. That one of the hardest parts of 
holiness is responding to the sin of other people. But here we are called not to sin in return. The Bible does not tell us to ignore sin. To ignore their sin. The Bible tells us what to do when someone breaks the law. Or when they are a member of the church and they are doing things that are forbidden by God's law. The Bible tells us not that vengeance is wrong, but vengeance is the Lord's. The Bible tells us that in your anger, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. The Bible also tells us that we are not to let the sun go down on our anger. Anger is often the right response to sin. But that anger must be temporary and it must drive us to righteous action. It must drive us to God and resting in him in his anger because humans were not designed and built to hold on to anger long term. Anger is the right response if it drives us to righteousness. Rest in the raging vengeance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all things. Because the person who sinned against you is not your Lord. Do not let them make you sin. If you say, I must sin in response to them, you are making them your Lord. They have successfully commanded you and you've obeyed their command to sin. Christ is your Lord. Obey him and trust that him, that he and he alone is the one to give you commands. Now, cutting off body parts, it's pretty severe. We see this, and it does remind us a little bit of church discipline. The church is meant to be a body of people who make commitments to one another to be a church, to be the people who are praising God together, who are worshiping God together, who grieve together, who rejoice together, who warn each other against sin. And the Bible says this, you must be careful in how you act as a body together. And we do this, ultimately, if somebody says, I will not repent of sin, we are to say, we can no longer treat you as a Christian. Now, you might be one, but because you refuse to repent, we can no longer say you're acting like a Christian. And we do this, the Bible says, we do this because we love that sinner, because we want them to repent. We want them to start walking as a child of God. And the, one of the ways that God gives us to do that is no longer treating them like a child of God, so that they would turn and want to be a child of God. But we do this also because we love the people around them. Because we cannot afford to condone unchristlike behavior and to state by non-action that this man acts like Jesus, that this is Christian behavior. We must take seriously, we must take the causing of children to sin or the encouragement of children to sin, or of Christians to sin, we must take this as seriously as Christ does. He takes it very, very seriously. So dear church, if one of the members of this church has unrepentantly sinned, please speak to that member. And if not, speak to one of the leaders of the church. If this is your husband 
or your father or wife or mother or friend, no matter how small you may feel in this church and how great that person might seem in the church, we want you to do this. Whether that means that maybe the government's criminal laws have been broken, bring it, bring it to the government and we will help you do that. And if it's the laws of scripture alone that have been broken, we will work with you on that. We will take this seriously because we love that person and because we love you. And we cannot condone people leading other people into sin by ignoring that. Because Christ loves his children. And he doesn't give permission for churches to care little about people leading them into sin, especially when they claim to be Christians. So we can encourage people to sin or cause them in that way to sin by sinning against them. But we can also do this by sinning in front of people and not repenting. This is something that is a pretty heavy thing for parents. I'm sure you've realized this if you are a parent and definitely if you are a child. If you sin in front of someone, which you definitely will, you must repent. You must treat that as sin. You must treat that as God declares that to be. If you are doing something that God says in his word is shameful, then you cannot afford to sin in front of another Christian or or a child or a non-Christian for that matter and say, what I did was right. That is very difficult for your children if you do that. That is very, very difficult for a new Christian if you do that. And that is incredibly difficult for your non-Christian neighbor if you do that. So repent. What a gift that repentance is. You're not stuck in this. God says, here's a way out. Condemn what you did and say, Christ died for me. And I want to be rescued from that. I don't want to cling to it like Gollum. I want to get rid of that. You can also encourage someone to sin. You can cause someone to sin by encouraging them to sin. By teaching them that God permits things that actually God forbids. Or when they see you sin and they question you about it, you say, well, God approves of what I'm doing. Or one doesn't need to obey everything in the Bible, do do they? Or maybe giving justifications for sin. Or or, or, or giving the world's reasons for why you can do something. Saying something like, I'm a victim, I'm oppressed, therefore I'm entitled to do things the Bible says you're forbidden to do. Or by saying, look, you, you have to sin because it's your identity. If you only knew how bad my parents were, or how bad my church was, or how bad my neighbors were, or how bad my government was, if you only knew that, you would realize that I shouldn't have to obey God's word. Now, that would be a natural impulse in us, but woe to the person who teaches somebody that. Now, we see here, this is, this is huge in, the, in the, the Christian community with the LGBTQ movement. It's huge. Where rather than pointing to Christ and saying, what a good savior he is from sin, churches are saying, you should not repent of that. God loves it. And before that happened, the church was condoning other sins. Not the whole church, but in large part, publicly, many churches were condoning other sins, such as racism. Or 
race-based kidnapping slavery. How shameful it was that there was men of God or claimed to be men of God heralding from the pulpits that it was okay to kidnap someone who was black to make him a slave simply because he was black. How wicked that was. Encouraging people to sin and saying God approves of it is incredibly wicked. And we must make sure that we do not do that. In every era in church history, there will be a different type of this. We don't see a lot of that now. And thank God we don't see a lot of churches saying that. But they will say other things based on what the culture says is great. They will change that and say, no, you can agree with what the culture says is great and ignore what Christ says is great and shameful. We see this in the church with the egalitarian movement and saying there is no distinction between men and women. And God wouldn't mind if a husband didn't lead his family. And he wouldn't mind if the church said, a woman can take the blame for what is happening in the church. We'll make her a pastor. God does not permit us to break his word or to treat what he says is great as shameful. What he says is shameful is great. So we can encourage or cause people to sin by calling sin righteousness and righteousness sin. But lastly, not lastly, we can, we can also cause somebody to sin by not warning them when they do sin. Maybe you're not telling somebody what they're doing is okay, but you, you're watching them as they are clearly breaking God's word and you're not saying anything about it. Somebody who claims to be a Christian, somebody who's a member of your own church, maybe it's your husband or maybe it's your wife and you're just not saying anything about it. In Ezekiel's call, the Lord reminds Ezekiel, if there's something in that I tell you is wrong and you do not tell the people about it and they continue to do it, the blood will be on their hands. It'll also be on your hands. But if you warn that person, then the blood is only on their hands, not on yours. Dear church, we must not agree with the world that it is a harm to warn somebody that they are sinning. We must agree with Christ that it is an act of great love. And we must be a church that loves each other and loves each other based on the definition of love that God gives, which is we will regularly remind each other that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. This is Reformation Day Sunday. And a few hundred years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg and the top of the 95 Theses, claiming the abuses of the church and the false teachings of the church, said that the whole of the Christian life was one of repentance. And dear church, we must treat the wounds of a brother, the warnings of a brother, we must treat them as sweet Convince the people around you in your church that you want them. You love that. You don't see that as harm. You see that as a good gift. You don't see that as poison they're giving you, but you see that as a treasure that they're giving you because you treasure Christ and you want to treasure what he says is honorable and you want your life to smell like him and taste like him. Last, the way we can cause others to sin or influence them to do that is threats to sin. Persecution. 
telling somebody you will lose your job or you will not have this job unless you deny Christ or just disobey him. Telling somebody they can be your family member. They can have you in their home and you will have them in, their, in, in your home, but only if you deny Christ. Only if you disagree with what Christ agrees with or agree with what Christ disagrees with. Dear Christians, we need to see that God hates this, but also he hates those who do it. You remember Saul, who became Paul, the apostle on the road to Damascus? He was on the road to persecute Christians, to have them jailed and executed. And the Lord arrested that man. He knocked him off his ride and he called him. And one of the things he called him, the the words he said was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? He didn't say that, did he? What did he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is a great comfort and a great warning that to persecute the church to try to encourage them to sin or to dissuade them to obey Christ. That Christ doesn't just see this as an offense against them. He sees that as a personal offense. And we have the phrase, hell hath no fury. But dear friends, we need to see that there is no fury, no rage, like the Lord Jesus' rage and anger and fury against those who persecute his bride, his church, who he considers his own body. This is deadly shameful, and it is worse than death. Why is it worse than death? That takes us to our second point. The first point is longer than the rest, so you'll be able to eat lunch. The second point is is this. Hell is for all who are not children of God. Hell is for all who are not children of God. I wondered if you noticed the extremes here. What are the extremes? Let's, Let's just read this here. If, uh, 43, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life, there it is, crippled than with two hands go to hell. Opposite, life and hell. Next, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, there it is, life, and with two feet be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God, there it is, opposite of that, then with one eye to be, uh, uh, then with one eye, uh, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so, on one hand, we have life, life, the kingdom of God, and on the other hand, we have hell, the unquenchable fire. Then we have hell, and then we have hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. You are not born a child of God. John 1 says that Christ came, that whoever would believe in him would have the right to become a child of God. We're not enemies, or we are not, we're not children of God when we were born. We're enemies of God. Enemies in our actions and enemies in our hearts and being. And here we see that hell is a painful punishment. You see this by the word fire. Fire is pretty painful. We also see this with the word worm or disease. Think about a disease infecting you that is painful. It implies suffering. Herod, what was Herod's punishment? For taking on, for for loving that people worshiped him as a god, he was eaten by worms. Dear church, Christ is king. And he is judge. 
and he executes punishment. And you cannot take it. There's no points for bravery here. There's no taking it like a man. Let God take his best shot. This is not the place where you can enjoy being away from God. God is there. God will be just as glorified in hell as he is in heaven. He's just as honored in hell as he is in heaven. He's just as present. But it is the glory of his justice that is on display. The glory of his wrath towards sin. The glory of a just judge and a just king. And we get this. We get this in our own sense of human justice. When someone commits an atrocity, even the non-Christian world cries out for justice. And if it's not done, we're not satisfied. And we would criticize a judge that is letting sinners or letting guilty people, criminals, abusers, to go out and keep doing it. We hate that, and rightly so. And God is at least as just as that. It is a painful punishment. It is not something that, as I've heard non-Christians say, friends say before, oh, I'm looking forward to hell because me and my buddies can go hang out there and have a good time and drink. No. 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 No, you will not. You will not enjoy yourself. You will not be relieved. You will never be relieved. And that is the next point. Hell is eternal punishment. Notice that it is an unquenchable fire. It is where the worm does not die. And often we comfort ourselves in trials where we say, this too shall pass. But here we say, the, we here we are, are, are warned that there is no comfort. There is no end. There is no completion. There's no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no escape. And there's, there's, no, even, there's no comfort in thinking that you are undeserving. If a guilty man is, goes to jail... That man will suffer the punishment of a criminal. He definitely will. But in his heart, he will have the satisfaction of knowing, at least I know I'm not guilty. That will be a bit of a comfort in that jail cell. That will not be yours. Your eyes will be opened. The book's opened. And you will agree with Christ on this judgment. You will say, I do deserve exactly this. You'll have no comfort in saying, I didn't deserve this. You will no longer shake your fist and say, this is unfair. You will agree and it will be to your shame and horror that you agree with God's judgment. You won't comfort yourself by thinking God is overreacting because you've committed cosmic treason. My dear friends, this also shows us the glory of Christ on the cross. This shows us why Christ is great. Philippians 2 says, the reason God, was, uh, God highly exalted Christ is because he was obedient to the point of death. And then Paul pauses and says, even death on a cross. Now, what did he mean by that? What he meant by that is everything that I just said about hell. All of that. It's unquenchable pain. And it's eternal nature that it would never be done. We'd never get it done. We'd never satisfy it. All of that, the incredible horror of the wrath of God, Christ took willingly. He did that. He was perfect. And he came and he said to the Father, I see what those people have coming to them. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to say, God, forgive them because they're innocent. 
They may not know what they're doing, but it's not because they're not guilty. I'm not, Christ does not disagree with God the Father about what the judgment should be. He's saying, have mercy on them because I will take everything that would have taken an eternity in hell. I will do that for them. Punish not them, but me. So whenever you see hell in the Bible described in the way it does, oh, let it bring fear on you, but oh, don't let it stop there, Christian. Let that rise in thanksgiving and rejoicing that God loved you so much that that's what Christ took for you. He didn't simply die by hanging on a cross. He was damned by God. Whatever you would have taken in eternity to exhaust in hell, he took all of that and he took it for a countless billions of people out of great, great love to make those who were enemies, deserving of that, his children. What a man. What a savior. That is what God finds beautiful. That's what he finds great. And for someone who is not Christ, the greatest thing we could aspire to is to be found in Christ, to be covered by that sacrifice, to simply be his child, God's child, by bearing the name of Christ, and that is received only by faith. By hearing what we just heard about hell and not disagreeing with God about it and saying, that sounds about right, that's what I deserve, and saying, Christ took that for me? Yes, I trust in him. What a treasure. What love would that have taken? And if that were true, and it is, what a shame to forfeit or neglect or trade that for anything in the world. Friends, who would trade that Savior for anything? Name your price. What could the price be? And that takes us to our third point. Treating something as greater than being a child of God is shameful. Having two feet Having two eyes and having two hands is not sinful. It's not sinful. It's good to have two eyes, two hands, and two feet. Because your, your eyes and your feet and your hands, they actually don't cause you to sin. It is your idolatry of those things that would cause you to sin. If you treasure having a hand more than you would treasure Christ. If you do not treasure the gospel as the greatest thing, you are in danger of forfeiting your soul. If you had to choose between your eye and the gospel, would you? If you were forced to do that, what about your job? If you had to choose your job or glorifying Christ, what would you do? What about your family? If they forced you to choose between them and Christ, what would you do? What about money? What about freedom? And let's say you did, you lost all of those things. Let's say you lost a foot, a hand, an eye, family, job, freedom. Would it be a net loss? Oh no, dear Christian, it would not be a net loss. What do you gain? What do you gain? You get eternal life with God. In Christ, you receive the riches that Christ deserves rather than the judgment that you deserve. 
But dear friends, this is also shown in neutral things. An eye is neutral. A hand is neutral. A foot is neutral. It is not sinful to have an eye, a hand, or a, or a foot. And so here we see that there are, there are things that we can, we, can, we can treat Christ as less glorious and less valuable than other things, even if those things are not themselves sinful. Consider a man who says, I, I cannot do those things that God says would treasure Christ the most. There's things that God says, here's what it would look like for a man to treasure me. The way he would treat the gospel, the way he would treat the word of God, the way he would treat prayer, the way he would treat the church, the way he would treat all those things. I can't do that. Oh, why can't you not do that, mister? Oh, because there's something that I freely chose, that, and God says it's not wrong, but I, I chose that, and, and I have to do it so much that I can't do those other things. Would you say to that man, if your free choices and things that aren't sinful, if they're interfering with things that would help you treasure Christ, then they have become sinful. This is, this, we see this in many ways. We, we live in a world where we have a lot of choices. Choices that maybe we wouldn't have, would not have had historically. Maybe voluntarily choosing a job that you, you know would prevent you from doing what would be best for your family in light of eternity. You, you didn't need to do that job. That job doesn't need to be done, but you chose it, and you know that you could have another job that would allow you to care for your family better, and you're just saying, well, it's not a bad choice. But if you agree that it impedes your ability to love and treasure Christ well, then that would be something you should really consider. What about hobbies? No, no, I, I can't treasure Christ with you right now. I'm too busy with my hobby. Oh, and the, the Bible doesn't forbid this hobby, so then me neglecting the church would be fine to, to do that. You see how silly that would be? Or how you spend your money, or sports is a big one, or entertainment, or your use of technology. The last thing we want to do is make a list of hobbies and jobs that are forbidden. That would be a terrible thing. Unless, of course, they directly disobey the Bible. There are some jobs that would directly disobey the Bible. But the other ditch, which is just as dangerous, is to say that neglecting the commands of God is okay if you're doing them for things that God doesn't forbid. We are to rule over to manage our passions, to manage our desires, to manage our hobbies, to manage things rather than let them rule over us. And so it connects with leading children to sin here. How will I set my children up? How will I communicate them with my actions, the surpassing worth of Christ, rather than just simply saying what actions are forbidden and which actions are commanded? What would teach that Christ is the greatest? Do that with hobbies. Do it. Have hobbies, but as soon as you realize that, they would, that you would do other things differently, you would have more time in the Word if you didn't have that, then cut them off. Does your life demonstrate that hell would be the worst scenario? Or are you communicating that you believe that boredom would be the worst case scenario? Does your life communicate that hell would be the worst scenario? Or does your life communicate that poverty would be the worst scenario? Does your life communicate that hell would be the worst scenario? 
or being dishonored in the eyes of the world would be the worst case scenario. And in order for us to do that, all we need to do is look back at verses 30 to 32. Christ teaching his disciples on the road about his suffering for them. To gaze on the suffering Christ, the lamb that was slain, and say, he is worthy. What could be greater than to belong to him? And what could be more shameful than to not treasure him? 49 and 50. This is our last point, a short one. For the good of his children, God will bring this to light. For the good of his children, God will bring this to light. 49 and 50 are some of the most confusing verses in the Bible. So if they were to you, rest assured, for 2,000 years, the rest of the church has agreed with you. They're like, we also think this is confusing. So, But let's read them. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now the thing is, this is drawing, the word salt is used a number of places in the Bible. And we can, the context is going to help us figure this out. Put it this way. Salt is salty. How do you know something, how do you know if something is salt or not salt? What would you do? Now this is dangerous, we're not encouraging you to do that. But what would settle it for you is if you tasted it. So I'm not encouraging you if you find white substances on the table to just, hmm, what is this? But that would settle it, wouldn't it? If it doesn't taste like salt, what is it not? It's not salt. If it's not salty, don't treat it as salt. Don't think it's salt. Don't act like it's salt. Don't assume it's salt. And here is a strong point. Those who belong to Christ have a flavor. They do. Obeying Christ doesn't save you. Loving what Christ loves doesn't save you. Trusting and resting in Christ saves you, but it will result in the Holy Spirit transforming you so that you have the same flavor as Christ. You share the same taste buds that Christ does. You find what he finds beautiful to be beautiful. You find what he finds shameful to be shameful. You have the same taste buds. In the Old Testament, sacrifices required salt before they passed through the fire. And in Romans 12, we're told that we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, we're not sin offerings that we pay for our salvation by offering our life. No, no, as thank offerings to say, God, you've already saved me. I just want to thank you. And here he says that the salt on the offering, God will, God will demonstrate. He will test through trials, through temptations. He will demonstrate that you truly are a child of God. He will expose those things in you that still belong to the things of the world, to the old self. He will organize your circumstances with good things and also with difficult things to expose those things so that you can repent of them and walk in newness of life. Consider the parable of the sower. You remember the parable of the sower? The sower goes out to sow. He sows. He scatters seed along the ground. He, some goes on the path, some in rocky soil, some in weedy soil, and some in really good soil. You don't know right away who is who. What exposed the fact that someone was a false convert? In the first place, what exposed somebody was a false convert is, is trials and trials. Suffering, somebody telling you, if you act like a Christian, I'll kill you. That is going to expose something. If you act like a Christian, it's going to cost you. That's the first thing. And God organizes those things. He doesn't apologize. He wants that to be exposed. And the second thing is the weedy soil. This is now good things. 
And not good things, I mean pleasurable things. It's not by threat, it's by enticement. It's where you are tempted by temptation. Where good things, you have the opportunity, hey, you could treasure this or you could treasure Christ. And God organizes all of those things in your life, not just good things, not just bad things. He organizes all of those things to expose those things. And he says to salt, to salt you. To demonstrate that you really are his. To reveal to you, you have real faith. You don't have that false faith. You have the real faith that truly does treasure Christ above all things. He disciplines us because he loves us. To keep us, to persevere us, to transform us, to remove weights and hindrances that we didn't even know were on us. We're carrying a piano on our back and we didn't know it. And he exposes it by bringing a weed across. And then we realize, oh, I had a piano on my back. Thank you, God. I'm going to get rid of that. It is because he loves us. Your church, gaze on Christ. As we sang, he is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Consider the shame that he bore for the church and the incredible, unfathomable, unimaginable glory that he deserves. Consider what the Lord finds as glorious and what the Lord finds as shameful. Let us walk in his ways, treasuring him above all things. How great it is to belong to him. Isn't it wonderful? To be beloved by him. The shame as treating Christ as shameful will endure eternally. That fire will not be quenched. But the glory of seeing Christ is great. That fire will also never be quenched. That is an unquenchable joy. It will endure as long as Christ reigns. How long will that be, church? Forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you give us warnings. Because you love us. If you did not love us, you would not have warned us. You would have left us in our sin. And yet here you are with a very loving warning. And not just a warning about our future, but the most glorious, loving salvation that beyond what we could have imagined, that God would love us so greatly that he would take our shame that he would even bear hell for us. Oh God, it is not, we're not playing tricks on people uh, to say, think of this as glorious. It is glorious. It is. Lord, would you open our eyes that we would see how glorious it is, that we would treasure it as the glory that it is, and that we would grow and grow and grow in our knowledge of how good and glorious is your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, there are people here who are not saved, who will go to hell unless they turn to Christ, turn from their sin, and trust in what he did in his life and his death and resurrection. May that be today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.